Welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. This is a podcast platform where brave people step forward and share their vulnerable, honest stories. And that will be one that will be the focus of this episode. My guest on the podcast who's here in my home is my friend, Mark Morgan. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thank you, Richard. Good to be here. Mark and I know each other from high school. We both graduated from Highland High School in Salt Lake City in 1979. We probably weren't in the closest friend group or immediate friend group, but our friend group intersected. I consider Mark a a good friend. Mark was much of the spirit of our senior class and and as he was our head cheerleader. And I have so many memories of Mark um, leading us to... Um, support our sports teams. Our high school basketball team once stayed, and I remember Mark being on the floor. I'm looking at our high school yearbook picture, and it says Minnie Morgan. Tell our listeners how you got the name Minnie. So Minnie Morgan uh, came from my best friend in junior high, and I was the smallest in my class. Um, Developed late. (laughs) Wrestled 105, 105 pounds my freshman year in high school. So I, I developed late. <laughs> well, and I think that was Lane Farish. So you've got um, a lot of good people that love and support you. Um, one of the cheerleaders I'm looking on this page, I know the men better. Dave Spafford's a close friend. There's Amy Knowlton. There's Carolyn Cannon. There's Adair Thayer. And there's Jay Aldis. So brings back memories to see all six of those. Mark is going to share his journey um, with addiction that led to divorce, heartbreak, disappointments. Um, 20 years, one years ago, he was at rock bottom and he's in a good place now. Um, and he, on his June 8th Facebook post, which I'll read in just a second, just shared a little bit of his story. Our hope is this podcast will help you. If you're working through addiction, if you're trying to help somebody that just feels no hope, that Mark's story will help you. Um, so let me read this. I'm sometimes not a very good reader, but I'll do my best. This is dated June 8th, 2022, and I'll link to it in the show notes. 21 years ago today, my life was at rock bottom, arrested for the second time with a whopping 62 cents to my name and homeless. Wow. Estrangement and despair come to mind. Divorce, heartbreak, disappointments, and darkness all seem relevant Back then, today I'm a person in long-term recovery. What that means today is I have changed my life. No more drugs and alcohol with an exclamation point. No more bad behaving. I get to suit up and show up and make better choices. I'm grateful today for my marriage, family, friends, courts, institutions, and careers that have guided me out of the fog. Sorry, listeners, I get emotional with Mark's courage to write this post. Grateful to loving parents that have passed on. I have so much great f- gratitude for loving children, family, brothers, Steve, Mike, Brett, Edmund Brothers, and compassion and encouragement. I am blessed with extended family that never gave up on me. I will honor my wonderful companions and friends, Jamie and Curtis. You both never gave up on me. I am grateful for lessons of adversity and resilience in the form of homelessness, jail, drug court, divorce, bankruptcy, unemployment, unmeshment with alcohol and drugs. Thank you, Judge Fuchs. Thank you to my early recovery experience with drug court meetings and rebuilds. I have been fortunate over the year to form strong friendships 
at work in the recovery field. Thank you, Discovery House family, Cold Creek, USARA family, and Valley Behavioral Health for believing in me again. Thank you for giving me a chance to pay it forward and labor in this important life work. I love working in this important field. Thank you to my ex-wives for valuable lessons and experience taught to me in life. It has taken me a while to process the whys and the wherefores. Thank you to my kids, Zach, Jenny, and Megan. You have stood by me through so much loss and pain. You've helped me get back up off the ground in life, brush off the dust, and try again. I am blessed with so many wonderful grandchildren. Thank you to my stepchildren for embracing me. I also owe so much love and support to my dearest friends, Michelle and Chris Moyes. You and your family are my family. Thank you to my loving wife, Brooke. You are the love of my life. You inspire me to be a better person every day. I'm grateful for your kids, Monette and Roman. I said that right. I am inspired in my recovery to be better every day in life. Thank you, God. You've never left me. I felt the inspiration every day to look up and reach out to those in need. So most of my guest listeners reach out to me and um, share their story. But once in a while, I see a post like that from a good friend. And I think, wow, that's a public Facebook post. Um, There's no shame. And this guy's in a really good spot and can tell his story um, that hopefully lift others. And that's one of the greatest gifts you can do is to help others. Um, So I'll just turn it over to you, Mark, um, to start wherever you want to start. Thank you. Um, It's a pretty good summary of kind of what's happened. Um, It doesn't do justice to some of the early years of of being, um, you know, kind of excited, having fun, um, experimenting those high school years um, where you're invincible. I think what I learned through those high school years, I had a great group of friends, um, very creative, fun-loving. I chose to ignite the genetics of addiction. I chose to drink at a fairly early age at 14. I chose to smoke marijuana at age 14. And the odyssey begins. All through high school, I struggled. Um, I, 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 and I don't know that it, I didn't realize it was really a struggle until graduation came and the time to quit came. And then I knew I couldn't do it. Um, I was hooked and didn't know back then the genetic ramifications of addiction. Had two grandfathers that were full-blown alcoholics, skipped my parents um, of, of my older three brothers, I'm, I'm the one that ignited it. And there you go. Um, you've got the makings of addiction. You've got the makings of um, fun that's now going south. And you've got the makings of someone that has to use to go to work. They, has to, they have to use to go to class. They have to use to just function. And you become enslaved. And I think the world of those friends, and ironically, they're both living great lives today. And um, I miss them. I've lost one of them because of 
drugs and alcohol. Uh, I truly miss that relationship. But I know that that person loves me. I know he cares about me. And that's the damage of drugs and alcohol is sometimes there's irreparable damage. Sometimes we don't catch it in time. We don't, we don't see that window of opportunity to save the marriage. We don't see the, the ramifications of the ripple effect of addiction. And they used to say um, that addiction directly affects seven people in your life. And we're in Utah with big families. So I always round up to about 21 people that I counted that I really impacted because of my addiction. And back in those days, you know, I was uh, somewhat active in the church, um, but feeling some guilt and shame, not really attending um, priesthood and Sunday school and, and all those um, meetings. I, went, I remember going in to talk to a bishop, and he was a family bishop, very close friends of the family. And I just wanted to talk to someone. I needed connection. I didn't want to go in for any other reason. And about three hours later, I came out feeling hope, you know. And his comment, and this was back in... 1980 was, we need to get you out of town. We need to get you away from some of these influences. And what do you think about a mission? And so my parents were in awe. Um, my girlfriend at the time was in awe that I was even planning on a mission. And I got my call. Um, so this, this meeting with the bishop happened in January. And I was on a plane to Italy in July. And it was one of the best things that ever happened to me in my life. Um, aside from a religious experience, it was an incredible, impacting way to grow up, to learn how to study again, to learn how to get along with people, to learn how to love life, especially with the Italian people. They're passionate about life. They live in the now. And it really taught me some valuable lessons that I now relish. And so I had a great mission, uh, returned home, married my high school sweetheart. We were both in school. We were both working full time. Started having kids. We, our 20s was all about serious study and achievement. It was all about you focus on your major, you graduate from the University of Utah and life will come. Like, there will be opportunities. And so I followed the script of so many of my classmates. Um, there were so many that were great examples to me from high school that did that very thing. They changed their life. And where I kind of started to stumble and fall was... I worked for General Mills right out of college, and it was a wonderful job in merchandising and account management. And it led me to a great opportunity with a Johnson & Johnson company. And it was medical cells, and it was stressful, and it was in surgery, and it was a consultative cell. And um, you're in there to make sure that surgeon uses your product correctly. 
in a tactful way. And of course, the patient's under an anesthesia, but that was the job. And it was pretty intense. And it was, it was interesting. It was captivating. It was everything I was looking for in life. But there was pressure and there was stress. And at this point, I was living a, a fairly structured Mormon LDS life. Um, sorry to use the word Mormon, but that's, that's what it was back then. You're fine. And I started traveling a lot. And through those travels, I felt the need to fit in. Even though I, I didn't really have that problem in high school, I felt appreciated and validated and recognized. I just had this underlying need to fit in. And I started social drinking again. And it would happen once, twice a year, happened for a few years. I was open and honest. And it started to splinter pieces of our marriage. And it splintered pieces of our marriage, not because of her doing. It was my doing. It was the secrecy. It was... It was omitting things, minimizing, exaggerating, blaming, everything but accepting responsibility. And I pulled it off for quite a while. And towards the end, um, I was reintroduced to marijuana, the old go-to from high school, and the rest was history. It took me to other drugs, hard drugs, cocaine, crystal meth. And within eight months, I was hooked. And I had a wonderful job. I had a wonderful career. I had a wonderful family. The white picket fence. Married almost 17 years. And I was hooked. And the big problem was I avoided interventions. I was clever. I was... I was on to my brothers. I was on to my parents. I was on to people that wanted to get me to treatment. And I just didn't think I had that big of a problem. And I was in denial. And back in those days, when, you're, when you come clean and, and you're transparent and the neighborhood finds out, it's, it's one of the most devastating things that happens embarrassment sets in, shame, guilt, all the things that take us away from a godly relationship. And what I learned was embarrassment cannot be our bottom. It's not enough. It, our bottom really is much different. And when I went to Highland Ridge, I had this gifted therapist that was my, my therapist. And he really helped me change my life. Um, he uncovered some trauma that happened at age 13. And he started to unveil some of the possible reasons I probably got hooked, not to mention the genetic component. Um, but I was traumatized, um, was involved in a home invasion. My father worked in a grocery store, was a manager. And Bottom line, they came into our house. They shot my dad. They terrorized us for about four hours. They threatened our lives. Um, we made it through the night. We survived. I, 
I got a, a strong testimony that God lives. You know, I, I survived that night. So I'll never forget that. And I just hated those people that did that to us. I hated them for what they were about. I hated them for their drug addiction of heroin and for coming down off their heroin and to find out that everything they, they received that night from ransacking our house to taking lots of money from a Safeway store safe was sold for drugs, was fenced for drugs. And I just vowed that I would never go that direction. I would just never do that to that extent. And so that story comes full circle as we get older and older. And divorce, of course, set in. Um, she was there trying to do relationship counseling. My therapist was there to help us make it work. I was incapable. I was almost like in a fog. I, I didn't realize what was really at stake until two years later. Uh, hence the problems of drugs and alcohol on our brain chemistry. I just wasn't ready. And the window of opportunity came and it went. And she did everything the right way. She battened down the hatches. She took care of the kids. She was honorable. She was a dear friend, but she wanted nothing to do with me. And it was tragic. It, uh, um, it was probably the first heart I really broke because of drugs and alcohol. And I just never always, well, I never viewed myself as a heartbreaker. I, I just wasn't raised that way. But later on, there's lots of things that happened to where I just got tarnished and I got bitter and I got hooked even worse and sucked into that life where it wasn't even about joy or happiness anymore. It was about getting what you needed and doing it at all costs and committing crime. And some of that crime happened to my own family, unfortunately. So what I learned from this counselor, this therapist, was he did his best. He did everything the right way. He really worked with us on marriage counseling. I had secrets. I was still not ready to work on life. I was still in shame mode. I still didn't feel worthy to even be with her. And the rest is history. So... Once I was divorced, I still moved on with my family, loving family, loving brothers and their kids. And, and I know there were lots of prayers offered on my behalf during those years. Um, lots of entries on prayer rolls for Mark Morgan. And I didn't, I didn't understand that until way late. You know, and, and I didn't understand that ripple effect of how much it impacted people. I, I, I slowly, you know, you, you, in life, you, you look at your key ring and you, you look at that first car and you got that key to that first car and you look at, you know, being 17 and having a key to the house and, those are keys of responsibility. And of course you get keys to the priesthood. 
you get, you know, later on in, in, a, in a marriage, you get a key, hopefully, to a safety deposit box that's got the silver in it. You got a key to a business that you've been entrusted with. Keys had a, had a lot of meaning to me. And what I noticed in those years of using, I watched every key come off that ring. My dad, <clears throat> my mom and dad were, they were in the trenches. They had no fear of that world I was in. They, they had a spirit of retrieval and probably codependency. I just remember being in a real bad bar, a real tawdry bar with wrong things going on. Um, and I remember drinking and smoking and looking to my left and my dad was sitting there and he, he said, I finally found you after three months, I've been looking for you. I finally found you. And by the way, your, your job, your company, Johnson and Johnson needs their van back that you've kind of hijacked. Um, you don't have a leave of absence anymore. The time has come and gone for you to go through treatment again. They need the keys to that van. And I stripped that last key off. Wow. And I just had a key ring in my pocket. And there was so much that, that happened in that world that I just kept feeling like I was on this bad field trip that wouldn't end. And I kept looking up into the heavens like, God, when can you take me out of this bad dream? And that's the sad part about that world. It usually takes a major event, an intervening event for you to get it. And that's sad and unfortunate. For me, it took an overdose episode. Um, one night I woke up in the ER and it had been a year after I'd left that job and I was out using and woke up to a doctor that was asking me what happened. And he was a doctor I'd called on in my surgery days. He was a doctor that recognized me and was aghast at what had happened. And he just asked simply, what happened to you? And I said, I got hooked. I got hooked and I don't know how to get out. And so lots of memorable moments in that world of survival and didn't ever lose the love of family, didn't ever lose the love of relatives. Um, I remember one scene where my brothers were helping my ex-wife um, rid the house of some of my stuff, um, stuff that was just she was tired of, you know, she had moved on, changed the locks, was, had a different life and Mark's stuff still in the basement. So let's call the brothers over, rented a big dumpster. I remember going there to visit and I saw this dumpster and I saw all my stuff getting dumped into this dumpster. And the first thing I did was I jumped in the dumpster and I, and I, I recognized my brother, Steve, bringing out a load. And I said, no you can't do this. And I just remember him saying, 
you got to get this out of here. You, you think you hit the pause button. Life goes on for all of us. And even though you thought you hit the pause button, you didn't. Time still, you know, goes ahead. And so it was pivotal. And I remember going into what I assumed was still my garage because it was once my house. Um, even though I didn't have keys to get in, I knew the doggy door and I knew how to jump over the fence. And by gosh, some of those power tools in that garage were mine and had value in a pawn shop. I remember going in and doing that several times. And I remember one time I went to go through the doggy door and there was a post-it note on the door. And I don't know if it was Megan or Jenny that wrote this note, but it said, Daddy, please don't take our stuff. And the real question is, did I go through the door that day? And unfortunately, I went through the door that day. And I've had to work through that. I've had to make amends. And I think for me, what it took was an overdose episode. It took homelessness. It took a second arrest for me to finally realize and have enough time to sober up, to look around and look at all that smoke on that battlefield and to comment to others, oh, what's happened? And to find out that's your smoke, that's your wreckage. And that's recovery sometimes. We don't realize the wreckage we create and we expect to have so many good things happen to us when we're in early recovery. And what happens to us is divorce proceedings, custody issues, unemployment, the whole host of things. Not to mention you lose contact with prayer and God and you become embittered. Um, the meth world is like the Isle of Misfit Toys. And that's the best way I can describe it. It's that good old Christmas movie, The Isle of Misfit Toys. And I was one of those misfits. And to come to that realization that I'm part of this problem. And these people have hearts. Some of them have lives. And can you rescue them? And um, is there really the ability to get out of that world alive? Can you get out of that world still with any, you know, remnant of identity. And, and for me, it took an arrest. It, it took drug court. It took really being serious about early recovery and going to lots of meetings. It took a lot of really self-study self and, and learning. You don't make amends right away to that brother that you might have harmed uh, I know it feels right, but it's not the time because they're still looking at their watch, wanting to know when Mark's going to relapse again. And so it's a real trust building exercise that you go through and it's got to start from somewhere. And each day that I work, I give people hope that this can be their time. Tell you, people where you work. I didn't mention that at the beginning of the podcast. Tell people what you do professionally. 
Yeah, it's just so a tangent and then yeah, go back. <laughs> yeah, I've had I've had a number of great jobs through the years that have put me right in the field of addiction. And I think it was an answer to my prayers because the one thing I asked for in, in gel with hitting my knees for the first time in a long while was help me never to romanticize this world again. Just please help me. Don't let me glamorize this world ever again. And my first job in my early years was VOA, Volunteers of America Adult Detox, for the homeless and indigent. And it was a great job, but it was humbling. And it shows you where the disease takes you, the end stage. Then I worked for Discovery House for about 15 years. I worked for Cold Creek Behavioral Health in um, residential treatment. And I worked for Valley Behavioral Health. I've, I've been there for the last year. And you're licensed and been there um, no, helping Licensed people. substance abuse counselor. Okay. okay. I love what you're doing. Mark, and I love people that have a personal story and then sort of clinical expertise to just change the lives of other people. But Keith, you're doing a great job of telling your story, so go right back to it. <laughs> so I think, I think one of the things I've realized is how vital and important early recovery is. And back then, we didn't have a lot of 12-step meetings that were LDS-based. It was a very new program. Um, it wasn't accessible, and if you did access it, there was some shame and guilt about it. It was not open. There weren't flyers posted on cork boards in the church. And so for me, it was going to Fellowship Hall and the Alano Club. It was going to a lot of meetings. I went to three meetings a day for almost a year and lived back home with mom and dad at age 40. Their son had come home. And I just remember one of the days being in the kitchen with my mom, she, she just spoiled us with food and great meals. She, she said, do you, do, what do you want on your sandwich? Do you want Swiss cheese or cheddar? And I said, mom, I am just so grateful to have a piece of cheese. You don't know where I've been. And I don't want to tell you where I've been, but it's been hell. And to just have an appreciation for food and to have an appreciation for a bed and safety and not worrying about withdrawal, not worrying about getting high, you know, and, and, and knowing that all your phone numbers are gone, that your phone has been cleansed. And I always tell families that, that come in and want to know how to help. I, I say, you know what? When John Doe or Jane Doe is ready, they will tell you everything. They will be transparent about how they used, where they used, why they used, how they acted when they used, and they'll give you the answers to the test. Because I think that most of the time, parents know about 40% of what's going on, really. And maybe that's a good thing. We work in increments as, as treatment providers to, to slowly let them know that there's hope. They say it takes the average person seven treatment episodes to get it. And that's a lot of episodes when you're talking with mom and dad. And it might be their first or second go round. And so it's all about timing. It's all about approach. And today, 
I worked at USARA, which um, was my job before Valley Behavioral Health. And USARA is Utah Support Advocates for Recovery Awareness. And they're a nonprofit. And they're all about resource connection. They're all about coaching. And for that person that's just not quite willing to go to Fellowship Hall, or he's too embarrassed to go to that LDS 12-step meeting, he can go to USARA. And he can be with people that have lived experience that are just like him or her. And he can learn about activities and he can learn about all pathways to recovery. And that's probably the beauty of today working in this field is there's multiple pathways to recovery. And it's just important that you get on one that, you know, gaming is not an acceptable pathway. Um, staying indoors and Lord knows we had our issues with COVID and you know, everything was jacked up as far as mental health issues and substance use and alcoholism at all time rates. And thank goodness we're coming out of it. And what we know about addiction, they say that the opposite thing of addiction is connection. And so what has been near and dear to my heart all those years in that world was truly connection to people that cared and knowing how to go about mending those fences. And today there's ways to mend those fences. There's easier ways. There's more access today. There's more meetings today. There's more sober activities today. There's sober softball. There's sober volleyball. There's, there's so much for that person to reach out and say, I need help. I don't have this thing figured out and I don't even know if I need treatment, but Will you be a coach? Will you help me get integrated into a smart meeting that's all cognitive-based, has nothing to do with a higher power? Or will you help me with Dharma recovery, which is a Buddhist approach with meditation involvement? There's just so much that's out there. So I, I've brought that experience with me to Valley Behavioral Health, and I really think that's where the rubber meets the road in this whole battle of addiction is we've got to find ways to get that person that's detoxed, that's gone through residential treatment, that's done the outpatient program. We've got to find a way to get them involved in that recovery community. And that wasn't available 20 years ago. It, it was a real hard road to travel. And so I'm just grateful for that I'm grateful for the experience of getting to share experience, strength, and hope. I'm grateful that I can give others hope that they can do this. And if I can do it, you can do it. And I will help you. Um, I will grab your hand and help you walk through some of this wreckage. I won't do it for you, but I'll, I'll let you know about the landmines and I'll let you know about where the smoke's at and I'll give you some tips on how to cope with it and I won't leave your side. And so I'm just honored to be in this field. I've had so many incredible people that have come into my life the last 10 years that, you know, have changed my life. Um, Michelle Moise and Chris Moise. And when I lost this second marriage, um, this one was just a real it was sad how we lost it, um, how we lost that relationship. Um, 
but Michelle Moise was someone I worked with and we standed, we, we stood true to our principles and we, we honored patient rights and we walked out on an organization that we were tired of. I've never walked off the job in my life, but I walked out on 9-11 that day with her and she looked at me and she said, you have nowhere to go. You're divorced. You're selling your home and there's no way you can get on your feet unless you get help. So you're coming to live with us. And she let me live with her. She loved me. Um, I've, I've often stated that she knew my mom in heaven. Um, she is like a wonderful sister to me, a sister I never had. And to this day, she's a dear friend. And without her, I'm not married to my wife, Brooke, because we all work together. And she became the therapist to help us work through these ugly times. And sure enough, um, once divorces occurred and once there was time for people to do their thing and rebuild and not give up, um, love comes my way again, you know, and, and this time it's with someone I know and I've worked with for years. So life is good today. It's not about um, positions. It's not about cars. It's not about um, the nice things of life that people work so diligent to have in those early 20s. There's, I just remember those early 20s, how focused I was and how much I wanted to continue to build an income and invest and and I've literally had three rebuilds. I've really, really had to start over three times from square one with no money, uh, no housing, and slowly but surely I'm rebuilding again. So I don't plan on giving up. I plan on hanging out for a while. And Salt Lake has a small recovery community. There's a lot of people that know each other. And there's so many good, willing people that are there to help. You just got to ask for help. You got to raise your hand and um, not be afraid. And more than anything, I think you need to consult with God, your maker, whoever it might be, and get in touch with your spirit and, and follow what your spirit really tells you. And I just think the, the field's ready for harvest, so to speak. Um, we're at a really good time with neurochemistry and developing drugs that can help. You know, we've got this huge opioid epidemic and, and we're trying to address overdoses and we're now handing out Narcan kits and naloxone kits to folks and letting them know that, hey, you should have this in your glove box. It's no different than a fire extinguisher in your kitchen. Doesn't matter if you're, if you're not an addict. It, it, what it matters about is if you drive up in a, a 7-Eleven at 11 at night to buy a gallon of milk and you look over and you see someone passed out and we know that Narcan can save lives. And so, so many tools today that we didn't have back in the day, 21 years ago, that I'm grateful we have and, and the work continues and, and we still need help. We still need lots of volunteers and we still need people to go into that field in college 
There's just this overwhelming need for therapists right now because of the COVID epidemic. And there's just a need for so many people. Uh, Mark, on behalf of our listeners, thanks for your courage to be so open and vulnerable and real. Um, respect. When I saw your June 8th Facebook post, my respect, love, admiration for you only increased with your courage to be honest. Um, I'll tag Mark in Facebook. You can, he's pretty honest in Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> There's no sort of, um, you're just very transparent on who you are. And I think that's a really good thing. Yeah. And it's hard to do that in our 20s sometimes. Um, there was a lot of things that I loved. Before we visited, I, uh, Mark talked about um, instead of being clean or dirty, he doesn't like those words. And this is good for those of us that are trying to understand the space. He likes long-term recovery. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I, in honor of the AA and 12-step program, of course, you're, you're going to introduce yourself as an alcoholic or an addict. However, you know, my days at USARA really taught me, no, you're a person in long-term recovery and it's important to share the message. And that's what's been missing for a decade or two is getting that message out. I love you connecting dots on the trauma from your youth. I mean, I'm looking at your four high school yearbook pictures. You doubled, you know, in high school yearbooks, listeners, we used to see how many times we could get listed and Mark has four, I have two, so he doubled me. <laughs> and Mark was a larger-than-life personality in high school. Everybody knew Minnie Morgan. And in some ways, you were the spirit of her class because you trans— and I don't know if you like me talking to you about this because your life has turned out so different than high school, but, you know, there were sports things that came and go, but you were the continuity between all of that and part of that group that just brought spirit to her class. Um, there's other names we could mention, but I just— I love that about you, and I still feel that about you, but I love where you connected the trauma from your youth, and I don't think, even though you recognize all the pain and all the carnage, I don't think one day you just said, I'm going to use. I'm going to disappoint my wife or disappoint God or disappoint kids, and this is the way I'm going to do it. It's just us. It's just a way to cope, it's, and it's not a good way to cope. But it's, I think it humanizes people that get in this space to realize they didn't said, okay, this is where I want to end up. Mm -hmm. This is the path to do it because I want to be where there's no keys on my key ring. Yep. I love that vision. I love the power of that last key. Um, that was pretty powerful. And there's keys on your key ring today. Yeah. Or fobs or whatever. But I love that you connected and that's the role of therapists is that would be incredibly traumatic to see your father in a home invasion robbery, the safety of your home, 13 years old, to see your father and your mother, um, and you experience that and recognize that's part of the coping you did to deal with that. And I think it gives us all more empathy. It doesn't excuse that Mark's not here, not taking responsibility. I hope you pick that up in his Facebook posts. He's not skirting responsibility. He's very aware um, very cognizant of, but he's but he's also connecting the dots and just how this came into his life, and I think that's helpful for other listeners that are trying to avoid this space. One of the things that one of my earlier listeners taught me is to not do the what if, but do what now. And the what if is sort of, and maybe 
you know, for all of us, we'd go back and I wish I could redo this. What if I never used? What if? And I think that's just, and you could talk about this, Mark. I think that's so difficult to go down that space versus just going, okay, what now? I'm looking forward with the reality of my life and what can I do now? How do you get out of that spiral where you go, what if, and what if, and just talk to people that are still in that, just thinking my life's over because of this or that. I have no future. There's, there's so much shame and embarrassment. I just don't, I don't want to live. Yeah. I mean, I think it's vital that therapists get called in because we know so much about trauma today that we didn't know 20 years ago. And they're the experts at helping work through trauma. And also letting that person know that they're not alone, that um, you welcome what they're bringing to the table and you teach them about shame and guilt and the difference. And guilt can be a good thing, but shame is toxic. Uh, Shame is when we confuse who we are with what we do. And it's the dark side. It's it's the adversary. Um, We say that again. We confuse who we are with what we do. That's powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Brene Brown's the expert when it comes to vulnerability and shame. And I encourage (laughs) listeners to check her out. She's just phenomenal. Agreed. She's she's great. She's helped a lot of folks understand shame and guilt and vulnerabilities. And I think today in this day and age, um, it's about getting involved and it's kind of in the early go of recovery. I remember in my second marriage, it was so vital that I I found someone that loved recovery and sobriety. And she did. And she was born in Akron, Ohio, and she grew up in big book country. And she preached about the big book, Uh, not, not to the annoying point, but she understood the program. And I have to attribute my success to those early five years, had it not been for her in my life, I don't know where I might've gone. Um, There's so many that fall off. There's so many that fall out after a year. And it's so um, difficult to stay involved and to, to finally get to that realization, this is my life. This is the rest of my life. I'm gonna be doing recovery for the rest of my life and that's okay. There's benefits, there's joy, there's happiness to that. There's, there's recognizing the carnage and the wreckage and doing the work. And you do the work with that therapist. You do the work with service work. You do the work with journaling and getting to know who you are. And that's where you have to dig deep. And some people are just not willing to do that. And I think you do have to be transparent. I think you have to get rid of your secrets. Why did you do this Facebook post on June 8th? And why have you been, you've kind of answered this, but Facebook's sort of where we talk about our very best selves and our very best moments and yeah. our very best family pictures. And usually social media is uh, presenting our very best selves um, yeah. publicly to the world. And here you are, and you even got a picture of an emblem in your hand. Yeah. Just talk to our listeners why you do that. I think it's to take away the stigma that's, that society has created about addiction and to start to educate society, start to educate families that 
their son or daughter uh, has a chronic progressive fatal disease. No different than asthma, high blood pressure, diabetes. They, it mimics those, those three diseases. And we don't get upset at Uncle John that has a piece of chocolate cake at the birthday party Friday night. We don't tell him he's relapsed. So we've had to change our approach. We've had to let people know, yeah, maybe you're going to have some lapses in judgments. Maybe you're going to make some poor choices. But above all, start to dive into life and, and not be afraid. Um, talk about suicide. And I, I assume you considered suicide in some of your darkest moments. Talk to those that are thinking this is my way out, is suicide, because then all the carnage that I've created, I can just leave. And and you've probably thought these things, the world would be better off without me, my family would be better off without me. Talk to those that are thinking that's their best path forward. Yeah. Unfortunately, Utah has a real serious issue with suicide in certain categories. And it doesn't surprise me. It, 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 there's nothing that surprises me about that. What I think we have to do as a society is start to change our viewpoint and how we look at suicide. And we have to educate ourselves about suicide and how to best help people. Back in my day, it was like, don't use the S word. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it might give him ideas. Yeah. And today it's being very direct. Do you have a plan? Are you struggling? Um, if you're on the phone and you're reaching out to that person, is your dog okay? Hopefully there's a plant involved. Anything to connect them to, you can't leave. That dog needs you. That plant needs you. Um, love, loved ones need you. And we do our best to try to cope with suicide through education and awareness and helping people know that there's help, that, that those years of 12 to 18 don't have to necessarily be horrible bullying years where your identity is defined by Facebook and social media and TikTok and all those fun things. And nothing against those. They're, they're wonderful. But when you're starting to look for the amount of likes and you're starting to identify with who you are with the amount of likes, we have a problem. And so, you know, one of the things we need to do is really educate layperson. Um, just the whole population needs to, should be a first aid course. No different. Every, every two to three years, everyone should be CPR trained and, and learn about first aid. And, and I think the same applies to suicide prevention. I love that. And I have to think if you're three kids, two stepkids, six grandkids, and your posterity um, could be on the podcast, they say, we're really glad. Yeah. We know dad's had some really, or grandpa's had some really tough chapters of life. But if he were gone, it would be much harder than him being here. And I assume your ministry, I'm going to call it a ministry of helping people through addiction, is helping a lot of people, may even help future posterity that bump into this space. You hope they don't, but maybe some will. Yeah. Um, distant or close, and they will be able to um, use the tools that you've used or maybe prevent them from bumping in the space because of they've learned from you. So the gift to your posterity, this is both of us talking to those of you that have no hope um, and thinking I'm better off gone and everybody would be better off without me. That's a lie. 
that is a lie. And you've got to figure out a way to stay. Even if there's no light at the end of the tunnel, even if you've gone through this mental exercise thinking everybody would actually be better off without me, it's a lie. It is a lie. And you can be like Mark. You can be 21 years in recovery. Think of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of lives that Mark has been able to help because of his expertise in this area. And Mark is very aware of the pain and the trauma he's caused other people. He's living with both the reality of both of those, but he's living. And that's what mortality is about, is living and moving forward. And it's not about what ifs, it's about what now. And, you know, we're looking at high school yearbook pictures here, and your life has turned out very different. And I'm sure you'd love to go back and redo some things, but just respect for you for what you've done to get out of this hellhole that you were in. And, you know, I I sometimes think about mortality and eternity, and I gave a blessing once, and I've shared this on the podcast with a young man that served in the Army, and he knew people in, in, Pak, in the Taliban in Afghanistan died. And some of them may have been innocent in his bomb runs, and he was torn up about it. And as I gave him that blessing, I just, the words came to my mind. It sort of took me to the 40,000 foot level, the plan of salvation. Yeah, some people's mortality has changed because of what happened, but no one's eternal possibilities have changed because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So mortality has changed for you. Yeah. It sure has. And, and I, I still I, am Minnie Morgan deep down inside. I still have that zeal and spirit and can't do the back handsprings anymore. Um, but that's okay. I'm 61 and I don't want to damage my back any further. <laughs> but I would think your eternal possibilities haven't changed. And your eternal dreams, whatever those were, when you got on the plane from Italy coming home, it's different. But I would hope your eternal dreams. So that's both of us sort of talking to you out there that are have lost hope and feel like I've gone so far that everything, mortality and eternally has changed. Um, we're kind of doing this podcast in the context of high school because that's our connection. And um, I'd like you to share this segment. We talked about it earlier. And our, our senior class president, which is a larger-than-life personality, just like you, Mark, is Spencer Kirk. And Spencer's kept our class reunion together. We had a, we feel like we had an exceptional class. I've theorized that one of the reasons is we were the first freshmen that went to high school, so we didn't get to be the oldest in junior high. So by the time we got to be seniors, we were kind of had pent-up demand to really make that a good experience. That's my hypothesis. So I think we had a great senior year, and we weren't burned out, and we were very together and unified and accomplished a lot. But um, I remember being involved with our 30th reunion and Spencer Kirk, who was our senior class president, couldn't find you. And he kind of got word through the grapevine that you were in. And it sounds like you were in um, a recovery stage then, but there was just, it wasn't a point in your life where you felt comfortable coming to the reunion. And then our 40th reunion, which is a couple of years ago, you were there and you were a big part of the reunion. Tell our listeners what changed. I think... And you I mean, talked about shame before we yeah, went. Yeah, I think getting comfortable in my own skin, feeling comfortable with who I am, understanding my my destiny, uh, understanding my lineage. Um, uh, I've had such wonderful brothers, 
and parents that were there that never gave up on me. And I think that when you sober up long enough, you have a chance to start to make sense of your life. And sometimes right off the bat, you lose hope because it looks so discouraging. And that's why it's so important to get involved, be involved in recovery um, from the get-go. Do your best to stay focused. If, you're, if you've fallen away from your church, then consult and get back and use spirituality to your advantage. There's a difference between religion and spirituality. It's wonderful when they go together. However, there's a spiritual domain that I think everyone can relate to, whatever it is. And so you have to get in touch with that. And I think with sober time, you start to realize, I can do this. I'm strong. I can do this. And I understand shame and I understand the importance of transparency and I can rebuild. And there's people around me that will help me. And there's so many role models. There's so many people in recovery that are doing it, that have amazing stories and they give me hope. And we have so many in our community that have amazing stories. And I wish more of them would get told because I think there is that stigma of, I don't feel worthy to ask for help. I don't want to ask for help. I'm ashamed to ask for help. And we've got to break that. We've got to break that stigma. That's, that's the goal. How did you feel at the 40th reunion? Oh, I loved it. Why? Um, a rebirth, brand new, you know, an engagement headed for marriage with someone I truly loved. Um, I felt like Minnie Morgan again, and I felt that camaraderie that I had missed for so many years. And I do think the world of Spencer Kirk and all those friends, all that, that segment. And there's so many classmates that I didn't know that I know today that have reached out and asked for help. And I've, I've done my best to try to help them. And so I think high school was a magical time. And I agree with you. I think we had a real special class. And I think that that also gave me hope that there's people that care and love me, that even with Spencer Kirk looking for me, I knew he cared about me and I would see him again. And I did. And I, I just think that now it's about our, our kids and our grandkids and trying to be exemplary to them and, and trying to make the best of life and live in the now and not dwell so much on the world because you can turn on the news and you can get really discouraged quickly. And so if you have things in your life that are constructive and wholesome and spiritual, then there's a lot of hope. I think it brings you back. And I felt like God always looked out for me. He never left me. He was always there. I didn't hit my knees a lot in that world, but I talked to him a lot. And there were times when I didn't really care if a bus hit me. And you talk about that suicidality and you just lose hope when you're in 
that world and you can get out of that world and you don't have to wait for an overdose. You don't have to wait to get arrested. You can learn from others. And by sharing your story, that helps so many people to realize, um, I don't have to go down that route that Mark took because he shared about that. I think I'm going to think twice about that path. I'm going to go on a different path. I love the symbolism of you being Minnie Morgan back at the 40th reunion and and you walking into their reunion and knowing people knew that knew you and the shame and the self-loathing because you'd been vulnerable and you just knew you didn't know if everybody knew your story and there may have been a little anxiety but you knew a core group of people just loved you and I love that you were where Spencer was looking for you mm-hmm. and just even though I don't know if he found you at the 33, you were aware. You knew people cared. And that's a vote for all of us to keep looking. Um, we read this quote a lot, listeners. Um, those of you that are regular listeners probably thought it's coming. But it's Henry Norwin, a Catholic priest. And he writes, a minister's service, quote, will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led of the desert by someone who's never been there. So you know a brutal desert. There's nothing growing there. And there's just, you've described it. I don't want to re-describe it. But you've also become the wounded healer. You're wounded. We're all wounded. All of us going to that 40th year reunion. Life's been far more wounding for us than we ever thought it would be. We graduated in 1979. But at that point, I think we were all just a little bit at peace being wounded and and realizing that life is hard and our lives may be a little bit different than we thought we'd be, but we could come together. And to me, that's the community and the connection, the belonging we're all craving for. And you're helping us create that by being vulnerable, Mark. And I love also that you always knew you weren't outside God's love, even though you weren't praying on your knees I believe that, listeners, with all my heart. I don't think culturally, I think that's our doctrine, those of you the Latter-day Saints, but sometimes we think that's earned. Um, there's things that are earned as a Latter-day Saint, like a temple recommend, um, but there's things that I don't think are earned. And it, and to be receive God's love and to have God's influence and to be able to reach out to God is there because we're his children. And he wants us to reach out to us. He wants us to reach out to him in our darkest moments. And we may not think we're worthy, but that's not earned. That's just there. And I think Mark has mentioned that several times during the podcast and invited you that are in a feeling outside of God's love to don't do that. Any closing thoughts that come to mind, Mark? Well, well said. I appreciate the opportunity to be here to tell some of the story and give people hope, give listeners hope that um, there's light at that, at the end of the tunnel. And by the way, the Isle of Misfit Toys does have a happy ending. And we're not all misfit toys that I, I truly believe we're children of God. And I believe that there's one right. I don't even know if it's right. I think there's one gift that we're never unworthy to to utilize and that's the prayer it's the gift of prayer and 
if we can, if we can remember that and whatever prayer is for you, whether it's meditation, whether it's just calming exercises, getting in touch with nature, whatever it is for you, we got to do it. We have to do that work in order to make sense of what we want in life. And um, I'm excited to be where I'm at right now. Um, I'm excited for opportunities in the future. And, and I'm excited to live life the way it should be lived. It's great. Uh, Mark Morgan, thank you for coming on the podcast. Um, when I reached out to Mark, he said, I'd love to. And I thought that would be his response after this June 8th post where he's so open and his heart to want to help others out of dark spots. So this is Mark Morgan and Richard Osler from the class of 1979. We are old, Mark. Go talking Rams. About, go Rams. Talking about 40-year reunions of another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. <laughs> <laughs>